Hello, and welcome to Act Your Age, a podcast where two adults dive into young adult books in order to discuss how their appeal transcends age and other boundaries. My name is Corinne. And I'm Tasia. And today we are stepping briefly away from young adult books and instead covering one of our favorite books, maybe of all time, I think of all time. That's fair. Uh, Yes. Uh, Red, White, and Royal Blue by Casey McQuiston. We are so excited to talk about this one today. But before we do, Tasia, is there anything other than this book, which is kind of a constant obsession for me, uh, <laughs> that you're obsessing over this week? Yeah. So I finally started reading The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue by V.E. Schwab, which is kind of taking the world by storm and is pretty universally loved at this point already. Um, It's very good. It's made me very anxious in the first half of it, but I think we're getting into good stuff now. So yeah, there's that. And then I also just recently read How the King of Elfheim Learned to Hate Stories by Holly Black. And it is just kind of a continuing Cardin and Jude story from the Folk of the Air series. Mm Mm-hmm. And that was delightful. Yeah, it was so good. That was one of my obsessions this week, too. And it has reignited my love for that series and definitely turned into an obsession because I started to wade into like finding fic about Card and Juden because I just want more. And I've never really read fic about them before, but I should. And yeah, so, they're such a fun couple. They really are. And that book was beautifully done. It's illustrated and it's just great. A great series of short stories that give you even more background on Cardin, who is one of my all-time favorite characters. So yeah, that was really good. I enjoyed reading that as well. Yeah, um, it is really beautifully illustrated. Yeah, it's uh, give me more of that world, Holly Black. I'll take whatever you'll give me. Uh, <laughs> in addition to reading that, I also read this week The Roommate by Rosie Dannon. Is that how I'm going to choose to say her last name? It's D-A-N-A-N. It is a book about this very uptight New England socialite girl who moves to California and ends up living with a random roommate from Craigslist. And it turns out, surprise, he's a porn star. And uh, as anticipated with that plot in place, uh, it's quite the steamy book. Um, I actually thought I wasn't going to like it as I was going on because I didn't really like her either of them at the beginning, but they really kind of grew a lot. And it was just a a really kind of fun read in the end and covered some really important topics in terms of sex positivity and sex worker positivity. And that was also really nice to see. And it's going to be one of those interconnected romance series. So one of the other characters who we meet in this book is going to get her own book next year, which I think uh, will be really good too. So that was really fun. And I think that's my only other obsession because I watched this yesterday and kind of thinking about it is the movie, The Prom on Netflix. If you're a musical theater fan like I am, it was a wonderful, uh, glitzy, glamorous musical, just a really fun thing to watch right now. It has a serious message. It's about a girl who lives in a small town in Indiana, and she is lesbian, and her school cancels prom because they would rather have no one go to prom versus allowing her to bring a girl. And these kind of aging Broadway stars who are looking for good publicity try to find a cause to champion. And so they find her online and they come to the small town in Indiana and help her 
kind of overtake the system there. And it stars Meryl Streep and Nicole Kidman. They're all really good. The only bad part is James Corden is horribly miscast as kind of a stereotypically flamboyant gay man, which was borderline offensive. I can't believe we're still casting people like that in 2020, uh, especially when there is certainly a plethora of actual gay actors who could have yeah, played a role like say, that. Like, it's not like there's... Yeah, so a shortage of of people that could play that character. Yeah, it was really, that was really frustrating. But other than that, it was beautiful. I cried like multiple times. It was just really fun. (laughs) I really just miss going to the theater and musicals. And it was, it was really well done. So besides that, that's what I'm into this week. But really, I did just spend a lot of time rereading this book as though I don't always do that. (laughs) I know before we started this, you were like, oh, I'm not going to reread it because I basically have this book memorized and I do in a a lot of ways (laughs) to the point where then I didn't have notes because I was like just reading through it again. And I was like, I don't even know what to write down. I want to write down everything. I do read this book a lot. It's a big comfort book for me. Uh, when I like can't sleep in the middle of the night, I like just pull up my Kindle app on my phone and just pick up wherever I left off. And uh, sometimes that's bad though, because then I just want to keep reading as though I don't know what happens, but <laughs> whatever, it's fine. Uh, so before we get started today, we always like to start with a summary if it's been a while and you're not like me <laughs> and you don't <laughs> know this book like the fact have this entire hand. book tattooed on your face. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, we have a quick book summary for you, Tasia. Take it away. All right. So Alex Claremont Diaz is the son of the first female president of the United States. And for years, he has thought of himself as the sworn enemy of England's Prince Henry. After a fight between the two of them at Henry's brother's royal wedding turns into an international incident, their mutual teams decide that the two need to convince the world they are best friends, scheduling them for a series of appearances together to smooth things over in the press. During this process, Alex learns he was wrong about Henry in many ways. On New Year's Eve, Henry shocks Alex by kissing him, and Alex realizes that he is bisexual. Alex and Henry begin a fling that slowly becomes something more. After a huge fight, the two get back together and decide to think about going public with their romance after the U.S. presidential election. However, the Republican candidate hacks Alex's email and releases all his correspondence with Henry, outing them both as well as their relationship. Henry and Alex both eventually get their families on their side in terms of coming clean with the truth about their relationship, which is met with worldwide support. The novel ends with Ellen Claremont winning re-election and Alex and Henry starting their future together. Beautiful. The end. Beautiful. <laughs> so there's a lot to unpack in this book. It's kind of a short summary and very straightforward in a lot of ways in terms of typical romance novel fodder. I mean, we have kind of a hate to love, which turns into something more, but we also get politics. We get some religion. We get uh, mental health issues. We get all sorts of things here. So let's dive in and unpack it. First, I think that one of the biggest things we definitely want to talk about here is the representation of sexuality here, in particular bisexuality. Uh, this is an own voices novel. Uh, Casey McQuiston, who wrote this, is identifies as bisexual uh, and it it shows we have a yeah. lot of good good representation here um in particular there's a great whole basically a whole chapter when alex is wrestling with what it means that henry kissed him and why he likes it and was into it yeah it's a great i mean i don't know if i've ever read anything that so accurately depicts what it is like to be bisexual without realizing that you're bisexual there's, 
you know, the confusing attraction, not knowing whether you want somebody or you want to be them, misinterpreting every like rush of emotion that you get when you're around them. Like, is it hate? Is it love? How do you feel about this person? The whole thing is very confusing. And it's like your your mind is edging towards something that your brain already knows, but you haven't confronted yet. And I feel like this book just perfectly articulates that entire experience. Yeah, it's really well done. Alex is like going for a run and him thinking through all that, I think is just so validating for a lot of people. Like you said, everything that he thinks through, you know, the idea of like sneaking glances of other guys in the locker room. And again, that idea of do you want someone or do you want to be them? I think is really, yeah. And the way that he convinces himself that he's straight because he also like, like he kisses girls growing up and he's Mm -hmm. like, well, I didn't hate that. I did. I liked that a lot. So obviously I'm not gay. And he talks about growing up as the child of, of liberal parents. So his sexuality, he felt like if he had known, then he would have known, you know what I mean? So that's why it's so confusing for him. And he has this great line where he says, um, or he thinks straight people, he thinks probably don't spend this much time convincing themselves they're straight. Yeah. Which is absolutely it. (laughs) Yeah. hundred percent true. It's yeah. It's just, it's really artfully done in a lot of ways. And I can't really think of another book that I've read that kind of explains it all and lays it out in a way that makes Mm -hmm. sense. And you see the character processing it. Yeah. And I love that there's all these hints to that fact before the kiss ever even happens. And they're Mm. just like the most subtle little nods. Like at one point he's thinking about Prince Henry and he says, it's not a grudge really. It's not even a rivalry. It's a prickling, unsettling annoyance. It makes his palms sweat. Like that is, (laughs) he is misinterpreting those. Yeah. Like endorphins or whatever that he gets whenever he's around Henry or he thinks about Henry because that is absolutely a crush. Yeah. And then when you see that when he is interacting with uh, Raphael Luna, who is a family friend and a senator that he has uh, worked with in the past. Mm-hmm. And it says, Luna laughs, leaning back and lacing his hands together behind his head. Alex feels his flat, his face flash hot for half a second, a zip of good banter adrenaline that means he's getting somewhere. That is not good banter adrenaline, Alex. That is hot center yeah. adrenaline. <laughs> yeah. It's great. And then when he meets Sean, uh, Henry's like body man, who is just like very handsome, very well dressed. And Alex like immediately picks up on that. It's like, oh, honey, you're just you're you're really missing a lot of of signs here. But then there's a great like moment later where they go to Wimbledon after he and Henry are kind of together and he sees David Beckham there and he's like. Oh my God. I also love this. Um, like it, this is such kind of an in joke and like a subtle nod, but, um, I really picked up on it this time where every time Casey describes Alex sitting in chairs, he's Mm -hmm. never sitting in chairs like a normal way. And in one scene, he's like, upside down on the couch and another scene, he's got his leg hanging over the, the armrest and it is common knowledge that bisexuals cannot sit properly in chairs. <laughs> <laughs> it is it is a problem. So uh yeah, I thought it was I thought it was a really funny kind of nod and hint toward that. Yeah. In retrospect, it's so funny to read the first few chapters and be like, okay, bud, like this is definitely <laughs> a crush. Also, like his low-key like 
stalking of Henry back to when he was like a kid and Henry was in like, I assume it's like the equivalent of like Tiger Beach or something that we Yeah, I think it's kid. like what, J14 or something. Yeah. yeah. Uh, where there's like a picture of Henry and like June knows that he constantly sneaks to look at it because it like has like fingerprints all over. Like the pages <laughs> are worn. Alex, I love funny. Yeah, I love that too because uh, he, when he thinks about it, he thinks about how he, as a child, wanted to lift up, you know, pick out the staples and take that poster with him into his own room, and he thinks that um, his fingers were were short and stubby and not made for that, not like a girl's fingers would and would be. And I think that that's a really good nod to to. Um, how his mind was subconsciously right. being like, oh, Henry isn't for him because Henry's a boy and he's a boy. Yeah. And too, I like the, we get a little bit too of Alex's backstory in terms of like his best friend from high school and how they like occasionally like made out and like had some below the belt action with each other. <laughs> and yeah. I think that that's really commonplace too in that like horny teenagers are like, experimenting in a lot of different ways but you don't well, also it always happened when they were drunk and right yeah and convince himself it was just a right a drunk thing right i like when he calls uh calls him calls liam too and it's like was well, do we have a thing did i miss it liam's like i can't answer that question for you like i know i'm gay i don't know what that means for you but yeah. it, uh would have been helpful to have this conversation a while ago but it is funny too. I do like the commentary of how like he's the parents of or he's the child of democratic parents who are very open minded about this and he still doesn't know. He still doesn't think that it he still questions whether or not it actually will be okay. Like he's nervous to tell his parents too. But I think that that also just goes to show too about how even though like in theory society in a lot of ways is moving towards a broader acceptance of the LGBTQ community, it doesn't necessarily factor in in terms of making it easier for kids to come out or realize their sexual identity because the default is still to assuming everyone is straight. So right. if you're not given the vocabulary, the encouragement to explore that when you're younger, even if your parents on paper are the most accepting people in the world, and they do end up being very accepting in this book, it, it still can be really confusing. And I think I, I like that because it is just so true that unless you yeah. have the the reference point for it, even if you know in theory what these different identities are, you don't know whether or not it applies to you until you're kind of confronted with something that makes you think about it more. Right. And I like that when he when he does come out to his dad and he sort of expects his dad to have like a quote unquote a Catholic. Catholic moment yeah. about it. And he's, he says to his dad, it's like, well, you know, it's, it's different when it's your own kids. So even knowing that your parents are liberal and knowing this and that you can never know a hundred percent how they will feel about their own child. So it's, it's still a scary prospect. Yeah. To his credit, Senator Oscar Diaz in response that says, he says, you know, <laughs> it's not really different, not to me, uh, yeah. which is is great. Um, just a quick shout out here to Alan Claremont's iconic PowerPoint presentation <laughs> upon finding out that Alex is 
is gay. The titles of it are great. Like bisexuality and you like exploring your sexuality. Great. But does it have to be with the Prince of England? (laughs) Isn't there another one that's like uh, federal funds and uh, booty calls and you. (laughs) Yeah. Federal funds, foreign trouble. Yeah. Booty calls and you. Yeah. (laughs) So good. Um, But yeah, so they ultimately handle it really well, even though Alex is concerned about it. Uh, uh, but then, too, there is a continuation. And I see you like talked a little bit about it here in the notes about the place of the bisexual community in, within the larger LGBT community in terms of Alex's conversations that he has later in the book with Rafael Luna. It's kind of when everything's coming to a head, right? There's fodder in the press starting to point towards him and Henry being together. And he goes to see Luna and Luna talks with him about who he is. And Luna's been like aware of who Alex is this whole time. Yeah, I I love that because, I mean, obviously Luna is a gay man and he knows the signs, you know, so he's known about Alex probably pretty much since he's known Alex. So, but he's, he's lightly ribbed Alex about his crush on Henry like his obvious crush on Henry that Alex himself was not aware of. But Mm -hmm. at this point in the book, Luna has seemingly shifted loyalties. Like he's joined the Republican candidates party as, um, as their, their like token independent minority, like two for minority as they say. Mm -hmm. But in that scene, Luna is kind of obviously in, He's having he's having a day or a month or several weeks because he is in this participating in this horrible campaign, right? Mm-hmm. And so he's not having a good time of it. But and then Alex comes in, you know, pistols blazing, throwing a fit. And Luna says, you know, you should just find a girl and marry her and be happy. And you're lucky because you can do that and it wouldn't even be a lie. And this, I think, is something that's so deeply rooted within the the biphobia within the LGBTQ community. Yeah. There's this common perception that bisexual people have passing privilege uh, because if they so choose, they can deny their queerness and fall into heterosexual relationships. But obviously that's bullshit. It's completely biphobic because it's still asking someone to deny their sexuality and implying that there is a choice in the matter, which obviously there is not. Right. Yeah, and like Luna, uh, like apologizes for it later, and like you said, he's got a lot going right. on at that. Yeah, moment. he's obviously in a bad spot when he. So I don't think he genuinely yeah. means it, but I like that scene because it does bring to light, it does highlight the the rampant biphobia even within the LGBTQ community. Yeah, and I think it too it hints at rem- reminded me a lot of when we talked about autobiography because. Sebastian in that book is coming to terms with the fact that he's gay and he says something similar to Tanner who is bisexual. And I think a lot of times too, and I do kind of wonder whether or to what extent that comes into play here for Luna, like people who are so conflicted about who they are and being gay that when they see someone who is is bisexual, they're like, why would you choose this harder path? Harder path. And yeah. obviously Luna had a really hard path. Like his parents kicked him out when he came out. And ultimately he found himself in a situation where he was working for the Republican presidential candidate in this, or in this book, Richards, as like a teenager and became the victim of, of sexual assault at, at his hands. So 
he kind of had like a very tumultuous path to get to where he was. So I wonder to what extent it's that probably plays in a little bit too, which is also leads, I think, to people making those types of comments. Like, why would you go down this path? Obviously, that is a very extreme path. But right. but I, I do think then how they discuss that issue at the end as well is, is really interesting because we have this sexual predator essentially running for office. And that's why Luna jumps ship and decides to work on the Richards campaign versus the Claremont campaign, even though he's like really tight with the Claremont Diaz family because he wants to like work from the inside to make right, sure because this he sees happen. that that Richards has a whole plan for the youth, Republican youth, and and he realizes that's an opportunity for him to prey on other young people. So he goes into light, light the fire from inside the house or whatever it is. But um, I do, I really appreciate Alex's response to Luna when he does say like, you can, you can marry a girl and it wouldn't even be a lie. And he Mm -hmm. says, he responds in Spanish, which I am not going to do because I'm not (laughs) going to butcher that language on this podcast. He says it would be a lie because it wouldn't be him. And I think that's a, that's a perfect kind of fuck you to everybody who has ever, displayed that kind of biphobia, even though obviously Luna was in, I don't think Luna is biphobic. I think he was just having a moment. Having a day. Yeah. He was having a day. <laughs> but I think that's a that's a really good response to that line of thinking in general. Yeah. His whole journey in that book, Alex's is, is very, very good, very well done. We'll talk about as we always do our favorite arcs at the end of the book. But I just I think that that's it's a really deftly done exploration of an explanation of what it's like to come to terms with your sexuality and bisexual identity in particular. And we love it. We love to see it. It's really good. The power of own voices that, that, you know, uh, I, you know, I am bisexual. I can read this book and I can see so Mm -hmm. much of my own experience in this. Yeah. Even though the circumstances could not be more different. Yeah. It's really interesting too. I was talking about this with a friend of the pod, Jesse, recently, uh, in terms of a lot of books lately have characters who are bisexual. And a lot of times I think it's an effort on the part of the author who themselves, I think a lot of times tend to be straight, but to throw in representation, but kind of have their cake and eat it too, because often those characters end up with someone of the opposite gender. So it's like, okay, well, I have a queer character, but I'm going to write a relationship that I'm familiar with. Yeah, it's getting diversity points without actually doing the work. Correct. And I think that that's, in a lot of ways, a good way for authors who aren't within a certain identity group to write characters right and and diversify i think it's kind of really the only way they can do that and not get themselves into a sticky situation so i don't necessarily mind it because the more we put that out there the more it normalizes thinking it towards it but that's why it's so nice then to have these types of own voices stories and to see what it actually means to be bisexual yeah. and then actually end up with someone of the same gender as you because uh, the, a lot of times it goes the other way. So yeah, that's great. We love to see it. I think the next thing we should probably talk about because we're kind of getting into the politics of the f- fictional campaign in this book is how politics are discussed in this novel because it is very clearly 
drawing on a lot of things from the 2016 presidential election. And I wanted to discuss our thoughts on that and how that is done. For me, in a lot of ways, the first time I read it, this was like wish fulfillment because we have a female president. It was a soothing balm on the gaping wound of the 2016 election. Yes. Yeah. And in the author's note of the book, Casey talks about how she conceived of this story bef- earlier in 2016 before the election and then hit pause on writing it after November of 2016. She like didn't know how to move forward with it. And she tried to find a balance between kind of escapism and also kind of hitting on some of the realities of our political landscape. And uh, I think she does that pretty well all times. I think you noted this and I'm going to still stop because I think it too, it does go a little heavy handed on like the private email server thing. Yeah. For me. They hit that very heavily. It's yeah. Kind of, it's a bit ham fisted at times, I think. So yeah. A little, a little on the nose. Yeah. I don't think it needed to be like the White House uses a private email server and that's what allows them to be hacked. Like just let them have an email scandal like it didn't need to be such a direct parallel but i I think there's also like kind of ham-fisted like elbow nudge like oh it's not like an election could hinge on a private email server right yeah it does like literally says it at one point i'm like no (laughs) i don't need that i know we lived it i don't need that literally to be a thing again i remember i will always remember right but what i do like though is Richards, this character in a lot of ways has similarities to our current president, not for much longer, praise be, um, and others <laughs> in the Republican Party in terms of just the gross, awful things that he says. And it is wonderful to see a female president in this world kind of be the counter to that and seeing people rallying around her. So for you know, this book came out in 2019. And so for the last year and a half that this book has been out, it has been great to escape into this better political world. It's funny reading it now, though, because at the end, this book, the election and the 2020 election in this book is much closer than our real 2020 election was. I was reading, I was getting like, retroactive anxiety. I'm like, oh my God, thank God it wasn't like that this year (laughs) because it comes, I mean, it's for dramatic purposes too in a lot of ways that it it comes down to Texas, which is where Alex's family is from, which is a very nice big moment. But I do like how it highlights how screwed up our country is in a lot of ways, but still makes it really hopeful. Texas turns blue in in the novel and it did not turn blue in real life for us, but it's trending that way. And there is a lot of hope uh, that it will continue to trend that way. And I like that the book kind of plants that seed. I know within our group of, of friends in the book club we're in, there was a lot leading up to the election when some of the early polls were coming out. Like, is it, is red, white, and world blue going to come true in terms of Texas? And yeah. Agenda, that's okay. But it does paint even, I think, a closer step to what we want America to look like even than what it does in, in 2020 in real life. So Yeah. And there's a, there's a whole part of the book where Alex is trying to distract himself from his romantic woes and whatnot, where he kind of does, he dives face first into this heavy research on where like district lines are drawn and oh, stuff yes, for elections. Districts, right. Yeah. And, and how it has been mapped out in such a way to benefit the old white men on the Republican right, side of the Yeah. Right. So 
I think it's I think it's really interesting and that's something that has been a, a big part of the conversation, especially recently in yeah. terms of, of voting voter suppression and stuff like that. So Yeah. It was just really fun to like so this book takes place, it starts in the fall of 2019 and then it goes through election 2020. And I think one of the fun things about reading this book last year is that eventually we caught up with where Alex and Henry would be in the timeline. And so there are all sorts of Twitter accounts that like on the day of things happening in the book, they would be tweeting about what happened. Like, so for instance, Alex and Henry's first kiss is on New Year's Eve 2019 into 2020. Um, So that was kind of a fun distraction to walk through this hellscape of 2020. Yeah, their birthdays in March, like yeah, to follow. And it made it feel hopeful that we would have a good end to 2020 because they have a good end to 2020. And uh, thank God we got that in real life. But so yeah, other than a couple of things. Uh, in terms of just being a little too cutesy. I don't think Mm -hmm. I'm ever like going to be willing to like joke about a lot of the things from the 2016 election to the way that this book kind of does. So other than that though, I mean, it's one of my very few nitpicks about this book, which is also why a lot of times I don't, when I'm doing my like comfort rereads of this book, I like stop right before the email situation happens. I'm like, I don't need this negativity in my life. I don't need to talk about this again. It it hurts me for them to be outed and to have the the clear parallels to 2016, but it's fine. It's again, a very small nitpick. And I did read the whole thing this time and it didn't bother me as much now that we are on the other side of our own election. So yeah. Um, Well, they're, they're just kind of like small little nods that I mostly just roll my roll my eyes up. Yeah, exactly. I guess this is a good place. I want to talk to you about like one of the other big themes with Alex, I think is learning how to be the best person and the best version of himself to affect change and what he wants to be going forward and how the best way he can make those changes in the world are. And it's funny because at the beginning, I'm kind of like, I was kind of annoyed with Alex when I first read this book for the first time, like the first few chapters. I don't know if you felt similarly. And I've tried to lend this book to other people and it's from Alex's POV. So they're kind of like, this guy's kind of obnoxious. And he is in a lot of ways. He just is kind of full of himself. and, And I think Henry tempers him as he goes through, but he's also so sure of himself and what he wants and what he wants is to be the youngest congressman in U S history. And he wants to get into Congress as soon as he can and start affecting this change. And what I really like then about the book is part of his growth and learning who he is and developing his relationship with Henry is also realizing how then his dream that he's held on to for so long has to change. And I really yeah, like, I think his sister at one point says you have a a fire under your ass for no good reason. Yeah. And it's true. He he's he's high energy. He does all these like like it talks, it goes into how throughout his childhood, even in high school, how he would distract himself from his home troubles or other troubles by enrolling in all the AP classes he could doing all just doing the most at all mm-hmm. times. So yeah, it is, he might be a difficult character to get into at first because he is always doing the most, but that is right. kind of just part of his character 
yeah psychosis almost yeah i do love that conversation he has with june where she's asked him you know whether he ever considered there might be more than one path to use what you have or to get where you want to be to make the most difference in in the world and she talks about how she wanted to be like kind of a hard-hitting journalist and the fact that her mother is president of the united states has basically made that an impossibility for her she will never be able to at least not in the time in the immediate future be able to comment on serious world issues in the way that she wants to as a journalist and now she's working on what her dream will be now that she's had to give that up and to see where Alex goes through the book and ultimately realizes that there is another path and he decides he wants to be like a civil rights lawyer and really stomp out some of the more incendiary things going on in our nation at the more of the ground level and eventually work his way up to maybe like being a senator later in life is not a nice way of shifting his dreams. And it it's a nice parallel for him and Henry too, because Henry is you know, this heir to the British throne. He's third in line, we should mention. So he's, or he's the third child. Actually, I don't want to go into what the royal succession laws are in this fictional universe. I know what they are in real life. I don't know if that means he would be in line ahead of B or or what. We'll just let it go. He's not the direct one heir. I think the book says he's second second in line. So that that would make him above B. Got it. Yes. It's different now for like Kate and Will's kids. Um, it just goes in birth order, not gender specific. So I was getting in my head. My own <laughs> knowledge of the actual royal family was uh, getting me in over my head. But their dad in this book um, was a movie star. He stars James Bond and he dies of cancer. And so Henry has a lot of money from him and he's determined to just use his royal funds for, for good, uh, his money from the royal family for good. And he is good at like pushing back on the British monarchy's legacy for like imperialism and, and some of the very bad things they've done in the world. And so how Alex and Henry ended up, end up coming together and they kind of are going to be a, such a power couple in terms of making change and using what they have to make that change in the positions that they're given and born into. Uh, and it's, it's going to be great. I would read so much more about them. I, I know gonna, that's, but. that's one of my favorite things about Henry is that he refuses to, do anything with with his family's blood money besides use it for charitable mm-hmm. endeavors right and he just lives off of um his inheritance from his father yeah he has so many good moments too where he's talking about things like that uh when they go to the victoria and albert museum and they're looking at the one statue by and i forget the uh sculptor's name but uh Henry talks about it's like the, the one thing we like didn't steal. Like it's the only one in in England, and we actually didn't steal it. We were given this one, and then at the end when he's having a confrontation with his family and his older brothers being such an asshole to him about being gay, and he's like, "Oh, so we'll take the raping and the pillaging and the this and that and that, but God forbid someone be a bloody poof in this where we draw the line." Right? <laughs> like it's it's great to see him uh, stand up at the end for who he is especially in the face of this this system that is really screwed up even though he's a part of it whether he likes it or not yeah i have this as one of my favorite quotes for later but i'll just say it now since we're talking about it but um after alex finds out that henry is a huge star wars fan and once he he realizes that henry has very strong opinions about his family's 
empire and how he thinks, you know, they should return these artifacts back to their rightful cultures. And he refuses to live off of his family's blood money. And Henry says, one does not foster a lifelong love of Star Wars without knowing an empire isn't a good thing. So good. It is so good. <laughs> yeah, I like uh, this. We have a lot of good uh, references to pop culture things. And I like that one of the things that they first bond over is Star Wars. And it's when the first time Alex realizes that Henry isn't like this robot like just kind of prissy uptight guy is that he's at like a children's hospital visiting a young girl who's wearing like a rebel scarf and he has like a really great moment with her and then they fight over which star wars movie is the best yeah and it's very sweet it is and i i like that henry's favorite is return of the jedi because he's such a softie and he wants the happy ending yeah <laughs> it's adorable it's henry all over yeah so I think then that's maybe a good place to talk about Henry in this book. And what I think is one of like the bigger things for him is the grief that he's dealing with after the loss of his father to cancer. And then compounded on top of that, his family's reaction to it, his mother's withdrawal from, uh, from really being any sort of active presence in his life. And I just think that that is really well done to Henry has a lot of issues about who he's become because of that. He's definitely different and forever changed because of that. And it's part of why he thinks that he can continue to deny himself happiness with Alex and with who he really is in terms of being out because he thinks that inevitably Alex or whoever is going to realize that he's kind of this damaged person now. And then there's what well, they're not going to want to be part of it anymore. Um, and Alex sees through that. And I think one of my favorite moments in the book is after they're outed and Alex flies to England and is at Buckingham Palace and uh, Henry falls asleep and he's talking to Henry's sister, B, and is like, you know, there's something he's not telling me. I don't know. I don't know what it is. And it's like really bothering me. I can't figure it out. And she's like, oh, love, he misses dad. And then she talks about what it's like to have lost a parent when you're that young. And she says, the worst thing is one of the first big things that ever happens to you in your life. It happens to you and it goes all the way down to the bottom of what you know how to feel. And it rips it open and carves out this chasm down below to make room. And because you were so young and because it was one of the first big things to happen in your life, you'll always carry it inside you. Every time something terrible happens to you from then on, it doesn't just stop at the bottom. It goes all the way down. And I love that depiction of just how overarching grief can be and how bottomless it can feel and how it can really take over your life. But then it's wonderful because she says to Alex, like, if you're going to be with him, you have to like accept this part of him too. And Alex is like, I, I, one of my favorite moments of the book where he's like, I, I love it. I love all of him. I love him on purpose. Yeah, <sighs> that is so good. Uh, so to see Henry's kind of journey through that and how it's affected him, it's kind of also the foundation of, why Alex thinks like Henry's an asshole because the first time they meet at the Rio Olympics in 2016, Henry is like a total jerk to Alex. And it, you know, in retrospect, he's like, yeah, I'm sorry. Like it was, you know, a year and a half after my dad died and I'm still just kind of an asshole to everyone at that point. And uh, I think to see how Henry, like not, I don't think intentionally, but like hides himself within his grief and it like sort of serves as this like, cover for him to not have to confront his other 
issues in his life in terms of becoming who he is. And so to see him kind of push past that. Yeah. And the grief is, is sort of a double hit there because he lost his father to cancer and he lost his mother to grief. So she became, she essentially emotionally abandoned him, which left him vulnerable to his older brother and his grandmother's machinations. Mm -hmm. And, and they very firmly, very obviously wanted him to be entirely stuffed in the closet. Whereas his father and his mother were both very open with him and both very supportive. So yeah, it was, it was that, that grief is, is a heavy thing for him because it, it's not only representative of the loss of his parents, but it's also representative of his being handcuffed essentially. Yeah. And then like he, because he thinks he's damaged, he thinks he like deserves the fact that he's been like forced into the closet to stay in the closet. And then finally he like says to Alex, or something, like, you make me believe like I'm, that I deserve better. I never thought that before I had you. And so it's nice then to see him, uh, fight for himself at the end of the book. And, you know, he's much different than Alex in that he is a hundred percent sure of who he is in terms of his sexuality. Like well, the first time they hook up, he like looks Alex up, the, <laughs> up and down. And he's like, he's, I'm very gay. <laughs> so I'm very deeply gay. Yeah. And I love and, him. And then when he's like fighting with his family at the end, like, I was just thinking that part. Contemplating it's a, a, like, that it's a choice or something. He's like, you know how to do these. Like, well, I've been gay as a maple since the day I came out of mom, Philip. So so he's very uh, confident in who he is. And so his journey is a lot more about whether or not he's ever going to be able to come out and, like, live his best life. And he's definitely been repressed in so many ways. You know, they, when they set up this fake friendship that Alex has given a list of all of his interests, and it's all a lie. It's all like, fake. It's all all fake. And he's so interested in like gay history and particularly as it pertains to the royal family. And he has all these like deeper interests, but like the crown has said that he can't like express any of those. So to see him then become as uh, Alex calls him then like a revolutionary gay icon is yeah. is great. We love the to gay see history it. is another thing I love, love, love in this mm-hmm. book because it's something they bring up a lot in their emails and their their romantic letters to each other are often mm-hmm. quotes from other, you know, uh, queer figures in history writing love letters. Mm-hmm. And also how Alex thinks about how Henry has helped him be more himself because not only has he realized that he's bisexual, but that realization has led him to a further interest in queer history and... Yeah he becomes much more involved in in his community right and that that's also another very real part of the coming out experience yeah yeah it's all just really well done those uh, the emails man we'll talk about them in a minute but it's i, one I of the outrageously romantic books i've ever read in my <laughs> life like, yeah so i think we kind of did talk about like the main themes of what we what gives this book a lot of heart but then on top of all of that we just have the most beautiful love story. Blows me away. It's so good. And that's why the this, writing in this book uh, is incredible. Just the romantic. I'm just, I, I literally yeah. have never read something more romantic in my yeah. life. Like it physically hurts yeah. me to read it. It's so good. And I think, I guess, to briefly like tie it back to what I was saying about like Alex at the beginning is that he's so raw and real. I, her writing is is such that I have such a strong grasp of every single scene and every single character because it's so real and it's so well done. So at first, like Alex has kind of a different 
way of speak, like he, he, a different kind of way of speaking. That's I, it's hard to get used to reading, but then I think about it. I'm like, Oh wait, no, this is how people just actually talk. This is how young adults actually talk. And mm-hmm. it, it makes everything seem so real. Like I, there's this moment always makes me laugh because it's such a good like capsule of who Alex is and like his manner of speaking. And he, uh, it's the night that he and Henry first took up and they like make out in Alex's room. And Alex is like, Oh yeah, this is like what I expected. Kissing Prince, Prince Charming would be like, it's like, you know, you're on the moors and the, the wind's blowing in your hair. But then like later uh, Henry gets way more aggressive and, and he's all, fuck the moors. <laughs> yeah. He's like, so he's, he literally says, so like fuck the moors. And I'm like, yeah. this is exactly how like people talk. That's how like, mm-hmm. I talk. Yeah. Is, uh, the use of the word, like the use of just inserting fuck into everything. Like that's how 20 somethings talk. And it just feels so real. So then you have this character who it's, it's his POV. It's very interestingly done too. It's like a, third person POV so it's not I it's like Alex thinks that this is blah 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 mm-hmm. and it's very it's kind of hard to get used to a little bit but you third really get present tense is a yeah it's, yeah. it's what a what a choice for her to to commit to writing like that because it seems really hard but yeah uh, you really then get a good sense of of who they are and then you just feel everything on such a visceral level at least I do and I think the emails then are such a good way to get Henry's POV across because a lot of times in romance novels they're alternating POVs so that you get both sides of the relationship and we don't do that here but we do have these emails which are the best way for Henry to express himself both for us the reader but also himself as a character because he's so forced to be so repressed in his actual life that on paper he's a wonderful writer and so we get that and god the emails i just (laughs) they're so good like i it's so weird i feel like we've talked about this book and all these other things that make it so great but like it's the biggest thing that draws me here is is the love story the humor like it's hard to get that across without like just again reading you the book book here so funny it's so funny henry is so funny henry is like henry is so funny alex is also hilarious like yeah it's so it's so good and you can just this is another reason why you can get such a firm grasp on these characters like you just know exactly who they are like you can tell so much that casey is a millennial bisexual astrology mm-hmm. gay like <laughs> Alex is such a textbook Aries and Henry is such a textbook Pisces and it's yeah. all just the the voice Casey's voice in this book is so strong I'm I'm so excited for her next book which oh is God, a completely different topic but, um yeah yeah, she. Yeah, that it's just all really done really well. The cultural references we get here are like very millennial based too. I mean, we get the Star Wars, we get um, like a lot of Hogwarts house stuff, which is for better or worse very indicative of our generation in terms mm-hmm. of how we categorize ourselves. <laughs> uh, what is it? Like Alex yells at Henry something at one point. He's like, "You're not a Slytherin, you Hufflepuff." Oh yeah, That's no. Fixed. Henry sends him a picture of his dog in a Slytherin mm-hmm. scarf. And Alex responds, who do you think you're trying to fool, you Hufflepuff ass bitch? And uh, Henry goes on to tell him that, no, his dog is a Slytherin. Yeah, right. And then there's that, I like the point, too, where, uh, like, when they're just starting to get to know each other better and Alex likes to, like, wind Henry up and let him go because he's a little more reserved. So he likes to say things just to, like, 
get Henry going. Mm-hmm. And Henry's like, I don't care what Joanne says. Remus John Lupin <laughs> is gay. And I will go to my grave defending it. And Alex is like, for the record, I agree. But also tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> so for all you wolf star shippers out there, we got that representation uh, in this book. But yeah, so they it's just written in such a way that you can really see exactly uh who they are and yeah we could just sit here and talk about all of that forever maybe we should turn to some of our superlatives here so we can highlight some of our actual favorite moments quotes humor in this i had such a hard time not just writing everything down which is rare for me because usually every week it's you writing just like everything down again whoever our guest is and me my notes are like practically blank and i'm just like i'm gonna fly by the seat of my pain now this this week i wrote down like everything because this book has so many good quotes yeah so why don't you go ahead well we'll this is our last episode of the year and this is also our holiday gift to ourselves and one of our favorite books of all time so read however many quotes you want time (laughs) has no limit today (laughs) All right, so my first favorite quote is one of the first quotes in the actual book where Alex is, is they're on their way to the royal wedding, I believe. And he says, royal weddings are trash. The princes who have royal weddings are trash. The imperialism that allows princes to exist at all is trash. It's trash Charles all the way down. And I think that was one of the first moments in the book that I was like, okay, I'm going to love this. Yeah. Yeah, seriously. Um, do you want to just alternate? And you yeah, can do let's one? do that. I'm going to do a funny one next. One of the best, most iconic scenes in this book is the great turkey calamity, which is when (laughs) sweet Alex is like (laughs) just so incensed that government funds are going to be used to put up the two turkeys that are partnered at Thanksgiving in a hotel. He's such a brat. He's such a brat. That's a great way to put it. Alex is a brat. I like love yeah. him, but he's a brat. So at the beginning, his <laughs> bratness is on like full display. Like you uh so he finally like has the turkeys in his room and they're he's like, terrified of them. This is actually his and Henry's first phone call too. They've been texting to this point as part of their like fake friendship. And or no, it's actually before they get on the phone, I think he texts Henry and is like the, the gobbling, like it's it's freaking me out. And Henry's response, yes, famously the most sinister of all animal sounds, the gobble. <laughs> Just makes me laugh so much. I love the turkey scene. Apparently, it's, she almost so cut good. it. This book is long. It's long for a romance novel, mm-hmm. and apparently, she almost cut this scene. Thank God she didn't, because it brings me so much joy. I <laughs> turn back to it so much. It's so funny. Put them in my room. Put them in my room. Oh, Alex, so such a brand. I love you. <laughs> do you have another one? I do. Okay. I think this is when they they get thrown into the closet together at the hospital because uh, they, they think there's like a bomb threat or something. And Henry is like, get off of me, get off of me. And Alex says, stop telling me what to do. You're not the prince of me. <laughs> a great example of what a brat Alex is. What a brat like, Alex oh is. He's such a brat. Yeah. It's, it's adorable. It is adorable. That also made me think, I don't even have written this written down which this is really indicative of how well this is going to go here because i just keep thinking of other things but when they hook up in new york after the dnc and uh zara uh who works for the president comes banging on the door for alex and alex tells henry like get in the get in the closet and henry goes hmm quiet and alex <laughs> is like yes yes we'll unpack this ironic symbolism later like, <laughs> um, 
All right. I another funny uh, Henry moment I have is when after they have their huge fight and Alex flies to Buckingham Palace to to kind of win him back and uh, Henry go, wakes up in the morning goes for a jog very uh, as he says Mr. Darcy brooding at Pemberley <laughs> he says that he woke up and he saw his brother Philip and he's like luckily he didn't know you he didn't seem to know that you'd come here and then he says he was up early for some appearance or another eating toast plain toast have you ever seen someone eat toast without anything on it harrowing truly honestly he's right that's it's, disgusting it's, it is disgusting <laughs> anyway All right, I have serious so... quotes <laughs> oh wait no I have one more funny one but you go ahead okay this is when they're still texting, I think, and Henry tells them that he was in a very boring meeting. And Alex says, was it a meeting about which of your cousins have to marry each other to take back Casterly Rock? Which is <laughs> so, so fucking funny. And also just really great because this is a podcast founded by two people that met through a Game of Thrones podcast. Yes, so it is. Yes, it is. It's, so, it's extra fun. It is extra fun. Um, I guess my next one is kind of... Uh, funny to me it's when they've started corresponding via email and i think alex has sent henry some information about alexander hamilton who alex is named after and his uh love assumed love affair with one of his close friends and it's like why does no one ever talk about the one possibilities of one of the founding fathers being bi or gay or whatever and he cites his sources and then Henry responds in an email and says, the phrase, see attached bibliography is the single sexiest thing you have ever written to me. <laughs> These two, they're both like yeah, academic nerds nerd. at heart. So yeah, citing yeah, sources, no, no other turn on like it. All right, what else you got? All right. Um, Henry invites Alex to a charity polo match where the seats cost $10,000 <laughs> a ticket. <laughs> and, Alex says, what are you raising money for? Monocles for babies? Love it. So good. A lot of what I love about this novel are like is like the prose turns very beautiful in a lot of places. She just really has a great knack for writing these gorgeous turns of phrases, too, in addition to humor. I, I'm going to read everything she writes forever. She's so good. But or at one point, uh, when they are together... But, like, I haven't really confessed, like, who, what they are to each other yet. And Alex is very, like, resistant to thinking this is more than a hookup for a long time. And, uh, but at one point, he is in bed at night and, quote, he rolls onto his side and listens, trails the back of his hand across the pillow next to him and imagines Henry lying opposite in his own bed, two parentheses, enclosing 3,700 miles. I, just, I love that image. It gives me chills. They have to like spend so much time apart. It makes me sad. I know. And even to go see each other, it's like a long ass flight across an ocean. It's yeah, it's really something. Yeah. All right. All of my favorite quotes are really funny. Or like the I'm sorry to bring us very silly ones. No, no. I I mean I love that quote. Yeah. That uh, that was one before I even started rereading. I knew that one off the top of my head because I always mm -hmm. like every time I see it in when I reread. It's it is. It's one of those tracks. goosebumps lines. Yeah. But keep reading right, your so funny ones. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also for a complete tone change. This is Henry. This is from one of the emails. 
He says, O fathers of my bloodline, O ye kings of old, take this crown for me, bury me in my ancestral soil. If only you could have known the mighty work of thine loins would be undone by a gay heir who likes it when American boys with chin dimples are mean to him. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I love too. It kind of is a nice callback to when Henry is in the country with his best friend Pez and Pez is like low-key in love with Alex's sister, June, and is like, you know, I talked to Henry and wanted to know like how, how he, he got you and how he, how it's working out between you two. And Henry just said, you know, I, I always mean to him. He seems to like that. And that's like, yeah. that's not going to work on June. And Pez is like, tell me everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They have a great push and pull kind of relationship. Like there's a lot of ribbing between the two of them. Yes. Yeah. It's just really it's fun. Banter. They don't we, let, yeah. They don't let the other the one. Yeah. Yeah, they yeah, they love to like one up each other. Yeah. But in a in a heartwarming way. I think do you my, have another one? I do have uh which is probably like the most iconic quote from this book. We'd be remiss not to mention on the podcast. It comes up in one of the emails when Alex, they're finally realizing this is more serious and what their legacy is going to be in this world. And Alex says to Henry history, huh? That we could make some. And it then becomes like kind of a rallying cry in support of them after their emails are leaked and people have read them. And then all this like outpouring of support, there's signs and t-shirts that say history, huh? Question mark. And it's just, it's lovely. It's such a good catchphrase. It's so mm-hmm. smartly done by Casey. Um, it, it's, it's just perfect. And yeah, I love it. I have several stickers and things like that that say that now at this point shout out to our friend martha who was here previously on our podcast she has an etsy shop that sells really great history stickers Um, i think she's at media maven martha yes on on etsy so we'll plug for that there but yeah so that's it's just iconic all right so my last one for this category (laughs) (laughs) um is another one from uh Henry's emails and he says here lies Prince Henry of Wales he died as he lived avoiding plans and sucking cock what a mood <laughs> so what good. a mood it's great oh, Henry alright on to our next category <laughs> actually I think it showed remarkable self-restraint this is like so a too. 400 plus page book and that was not a lot of quotes our next category is favorite character favorite character arc uh, this is really hard <laughs> It is. Uh, I can't choose. I don't know. I think Henry is my favorite character. I guess that's my choice there. What do you think? Uh, Henry's my favorite both, I think. Um, I do love Alex. I do love that he's a brat. I love brats. Yeah. But I, yeah, it's it's a really hard choice, but Henry's, I think Henry takes it for me. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's the um, that dry, sarcastic humor really speaks mm-hmm. to me in a lot of ways. He's also such a softy. He's so emotional, and it's it's beautiful to see that on the page. And you know, he I think being the writer of the most beautiful like emails in this book, which we'll talk about here in a few minutes, that just seals the deal for me. It's like so romantic. And when you, it's like with Alex, how Alex doesn't know that he has a crush on Henry, but when you go back and reread, you can kind of see it to see how Henry has liked Alex all along is really nice to see too. So he's mm-hmm. just like a secret softie and I, I love him. So I think he's my favorite character too. Um, and then arc is a little harder. I'm a little split on it because I kind of like where both of these 
these two go? What do you think? They both grow a lot. And I think they both help each other grow a lot. And they both learn so much from each other. Henry takes this one for me too, because I think he, he starts off so cowed Mm -hmm. and, and by his family and resigned to the life that they've kind of laid out for him, which is, which is a lie for him. It's, it's a, a lifetime of faking it. Right. And never being genuinely happy. Um, but by the end, he's standing up to his family. He's demanding the right to his own happiness. He is even holding his mother who emotionally abandoned him accountable. Um, and now she's she's trying, but he's still holding her accountable. Yeah. He's not running from Alex anymore. Like there, there's a couple of instances in the book where like after he kisses Alex for the first time, he bolts, like gets on an airplane in bails back to England immediately before Alex can even really respond to the kiss out of fear for his reaction. And then later when they're at the lake house and uh, Henry can tell that Alex is building himself up to a declaration of love, Henry, who has already decided to deny himself this, like basically again, immediately fucks off and ghosts Alex for yeah. a week until Alex has to go to England himself and show up in the rain and pull, I think he calls himself the the brown John Cusack. Yeah. <laughs> Make me but, stand in the rain like a fucking brown John Cusack. Yeah. <laughs> but um yeah, so so Henry has at pretty much every turn run from Alex and run from the truth of their feelings. Yeah. But by the end, he's not anymore. Like I was so the first time I read this, I was so scared once all the emails got leaked that Henry was gonna pull another ghost move. And yeah. but immediately when they are able to contact each other, he is like, Yes, let's do this. Like I'm still with you and I regret nothing. And yeah. that was such a huge, that's a huge thing for Henry to that's commit so to. Bad. Yeah. Um, that's, that's growth, man. Yeah. And yeah. And also I, I love him because you got to love a Royal that openly vilifies his family's right. imperialism for and, sure. And, and disgusting history. So, yeah. What I really like about both of their arcs in this story is that they are both fully formed people with their own interests and a lot of, stuff going on for them individually but then they each make each other better versions of themselves in a lot of ways and i think i mentioned this earlier too when henry eventually says to alex like you make me feel like i deserve to be happy and i i didn't feel that before and then i think also henry has like a confidence issue for sure you know he, he because he's been so repressed in so many ways he doesn't feel the uh he doesn't feel like he can share himself as much as he'd want to. And there's some great moments throughout where Alex kind of contemplates this. And, you know, towards the middle, this is like the karaoke scene where eventually Henry gets up and sings, don't stop me now. It's so good. Iconic moment. But Alex thinks it's incredible and baffling the way Henry's confidence comes in waves like this, how he struggles so much to get through the asking for what he wants and then readily takes it the moment he's given permission, like at the bar, how the right push had him dancing and shouting as if he'd been waiting for someone to tell him he was allowed to do it. So you see uh, by that point, like midway through the novel, he's already learning that he he can be more confident. He is allowed to want the things that he wants. At some point uh, during their email correspondence, uh, this is when they have decided to make a go of it, but they're keeping their relationships under wraps at this point because of the election coming up. And, you know, Alex says to him, you give yourself away sometimes, sweetheart, there's so much of you. Uh, 
he's Alex is constantly encouraging him to be there and be himself. And then there's just a great moment at the end. Then, like you said, where he finally confronts his family and Philip, his brother says something awful to him. And the book goes, Henry flinches. Like he's been physically slapped. Alex can see it now. This is how he was broken down over the years. Maybe not always as explicitly, but always there, always implied. Remember your place. And he does the thing Alex loves so much. He sticks his chin out, stealing himself up. I'm not a coward. He says, and I don't want to fix it. And then Alex says that for for the record, that is the bravest son of a bitch I've ever met. So it's it's great to see. It's so linear. It's such a natural progression of how eventually Henry can be who he wants to be. And Alex helps him get there. I love it. I do have a really soft spot too. And I think for me on rereads, Alex's arc becomes a lot more clear too, because he is this chaotic presence like he's a chaos (laughs) demon in a lot of ways but he talks a lot about how henry is like his tether henry is this steadying force in his life and it also helps ground him in terms of growing up in a lot of ways you know so one of the things i think is interesting in this book is we talked about this last week it's I think technically called new adults. Alex is 21 at the beginning. Henry is 22. They turn 22 and 23 uh, in the novel. And a lot of, in a lot of ways, they seem a lot older in terms of their emotional maturity, especially towards the end. But at the beginning, I think Alex seems so much younger and a lot more immature than, than Henry. Um, You know, he's very glib. He's very overly confident one would say full of himself I think you could also say as well but then he really grows and and settles a lot as he goes through you know there's the moment where after photos of Alex and Henry in the elevator at the DNC leak and it's kind of it's not overtly like indicative of a relationship but they decide to have June be kind of like Henry's beard and pretend that that's who he was going to see at that point. And Henry, they set up a fake date with June then, and he sees Alex afterwards and he's like on the verge of a panic attack. He's like, I hate this. I hate it so much. And Alex thinks to himself at that point about how he wants to hurt everyone who's ever hurt Henry. But right now, like he's not going to do that for once. He's going to be the stabling influence. He's going to help bring Henry down. And then he thinks too about how, he also was someone who kind of hurt Henry because he initially took this moment at, at the Olympics where Henry was an asshole to him and kind of took it and ran with him. It was like, okay, well, you're an asshole. I'm, I'm never going to be nice to you again. And in one of the emails listing all the reasons he loves Henry, he ends with this number 20, the fact that you love me all along. I keep thinking about that last one ever since you told me and what an idiot I was. It's so hard for me to get out of my own head sometimes, but now I'm coming back to what I said to you the night in my room when it all started and how I brushed you off when you offered to let me go after the DNC, how I used to try to act like it was nothing sometimes. I didn't even know what you were offering to do to yourself. God, I want to fight everyone who's ever hurt you, but it was me too, wasn't it? All that time. I'm so sorry. So to see him realize how he's made mistakes too, and at the end, he's there for for Henry in such a strong way. I just, I can't, I'm going to get emotional thinking about it. Alex really does mature so much in, in the course it's of incredible. this book. And it's funny because they make little jokes about how part of that is is you've had your first political sex scandal. You're you're like a big grown up now. <laughs> yeah. But it, but it's true. Like this relationship and everything, all the the trials and and the shit that they have to wade through in the course of it, 
Um, it really does. I mean, what, what's what's going to make you grow up faster than that? Yeah, it's beautiful. I love it. And then obviously we talked a lot about the romance here, but let's get to our favorite swoon-worthy moments. It's this book is a whole lot of swoon. <laughs> right, do you want to alternate again? Yes, we will. Okay, so my favorite swoon-worthy moment is kind of like different because it's very angsty, but it is... I love this scene so much. I, again, this is an example of Casey's writing being so crystal clear. I can visualize the scene, the inflection in their voices, everything about it so intently. This is the scene where after Henry freaks out at the lake house and ghosts Alex and Alex flies to England to confront him. And Alex finally comes in and is like, so what you, you're just done with me like what 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 is going on and alex tells him like i fucking love you okay like god like you don't make it easy but i do and they're fighting and alex accuses him of like what so this like never meant anything to you and henry says when have i ever since the first instant i touched you pretended to be anything less than in love with you and then he goes on to say like you you think this is about you it's not it's about me and how i i can't really live this this life and be who i am but it's just it's so fraught and it's so emotionally charged but the love that you feel underlining that fight is so palpable and the tension of the fight is so palpable i don't know why i i love that scene i think it's really I, I can't think of another book scene that has like such a fraught, tension-filled fight with people who are so desperately in love with each other. The conflict that they have is so real in that moment. Uh, it just, it staggers me. It blows no, me away. I, I love that too. And that's also, and it's really funny that the the most romantic part of this book for both of us is a scene where they're they're fighting and screaming at each other. Yeah. Because like you said, it is it is so indicative of, of their love, like it's their, their love is so much there in that scene with them. Mm-hmm. It's it's beautiful. Yeah. All right. You you do one now. All right. So this one isn't a quote. It's just it's just that moment where after they've reconciled after this fight, um, Henry takes Alex to the Victoria and Albert Museum, and he tells Alex that you know as a as a kid he fantasized that one day he would bring a boy here and they would dance. <laughs> to this song and he he puts your song by Elton John on and they just have a nice little slow dance yeah. and it's it's just really lovely. And it's a nice callback too to when like earlier after they go to Wimbledon and they go back to Kensington Palace and Henry plays the piano and he's playing on this like classical composers and then he switches into your song and Alex thinks, oh <laughs> yeah. He, and then he thinks something about like, oh he would do this, that and the other if he was here to fall in love with Henry, but that's not what he's here to do. It's lovely full circle moment. This moment is one of, I think, the most iconic email passages from the book. And Alex responds at one point to it. It's like, I keep thinking about that one passage, you know, the one. And it's this one, which is from Henry. Should I tell you that when we're apart, your body comes back to me in dreams? That when I sleep, I see you, the dip of your waist, the freckle above your hip. And when I wake up in the morning, it feels like I've just been with you, the phantom touch of your hand on the back of my neck, fresh and not imagined. That I can feel your skin against mine, and it makes every bone in my body ache. That for a few moments, I can hold my breath and be back there with you in a dream in a thousand rooms, nowhere at all. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so good. It's so much fucking casey man damn (laughs) damn okay so good all right this is after the reconciliation again when alex is on his way back 
to America. He says, or he thinks, at cruising altitude, he takes the chain off his neck and slides the ring on next to the old house key. They cling together gently as he tucks them both under his shirt, two homes side by side, because Henry has given him his signet ring. So he hangs it on the same chain that he keeps his old house key to his house in Austin. And so he's got his two homes, Henry and Austin, side by side. And it is. I love that. Mm. I'm going to give this uh, next moment to Alex because I, on rereading this time, I really love that the scene I already talked about in the car after this fake date with June and Henry's like spiraling and Alex talks him off the edge and Alex says him and again, he, he says at one point to Henry, I can't match you for, for pros. He's not as, uh, He's not as gifted of a writer in the same way that uh, Henry is. But what he says to him in that car, I I really love. He says, I hate this so much. I know, but we're going to do it together and we're going to make it work. You and me in history, remember? We're just going to fucking fight because you're it, okay? I'm never going to love anybody in the world like I love you. So I promise you, one day we'll we'll be able to just be and fuck everyone else. And it's just like for Alex, that is just like the most Alex statement of what they're going to do. That's his confidence that Henry learned a lot from it's a we're we're just gonna do this okay it doesn't matter we we can do this i love it yep uh, and then this next one oh, man. <laughs> all right so this is a uh, another email of course from henry of course and he says he, he's talking about when he first met alex and this is one of the reasons he was so rude to him because he saw something in alex and just could not deal with it so he says, I thought this is the most incredible thing I have ever seen. And if and I had better keep it a safe distance away from me. I thought if someone like that ever loved me, it would set me on fire. And then I was a careless fool and I fell in love with you anyway. When you rang me at truly shocking hours of the night, I loved you. When you kissed me in disgusting public toilets and pouted in hotel bars and made me happy in ways in which I ne- it had never occurred to me that a mangled up, locked up person like me could ever be happy, I loved you. And then, inexplicably, you had the absolute audacity to love me back. Can you believe it? Sometimes, even now, I still can't. Oh, Henry. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's just so beautiful. It's so good. Ah, my heart. My heart. It's just it's too much for me to handle this like, you're just checking out I just, my brain is broken pardon me i am off to uh <laughs> die live in this book yeah so like i too and this i guess will be a good way to wrap things up like do you ever have a book i I think I texted you guys about this the other day, but I was talking about carry on in that moment. But sometimes there's books that I just like have reread so often and I feel so deeply in my soul that I want to watch the movie because I know what it looks like. Like I have a movie in my head and I just want to be able to put it on so I don't have to think about it. And that's what I want for this. I want a red, white and royal blue movie that captures everything as it better as in my mind. So the film rights have been has have been sold, I think, which is very standard these days. I think for any book that kind of hits it big, is that people snap up the rights right away, and then whether or not it ever gets made is another thing. I'm would be so nervous that this uh, like a movie version of this book would strip away a lot of the heart that it has and just make it mm-hmm. typical rom com fare. But I would also be worried that they would sanitize it. For you know, to make the the gay romance palatable to straight audiences, which would also right. be a huge shame. Yeah. Not that I'm asking for this movie to be pornographic, or because right. that would feel. Actually, I don't think this book is particularly 
like yeah. graphic anyway. But yeah, no, I totally agree. But um, yeah, I mean, in terms of like the romance between the two, that I I don't want that sanitized yeah, to, for sure. to appeal more to straight audiences. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I do just want to point out a couple of months ago, sometime this fall. Casey tweeted out how like she's always had a hard time like picturing someone to like play Henry or like what Henry looks like or describing what he looks like. And then she had a realization that it's essentially Jude Law in the 90s, which give it a Google friends. Staggering. Staggering. There's just absolutely no way that Alex wasn't in love with him oh from my the very God. first second. Yeah. Like Although for me, like because we know everything that we know about Jude Law, his face just reads asshole to me, like <laughs> like a like an asshole that I'd want to like wreak havoc on my life for sure. Right, right. But in my mind, Henry's a little softer, but I just I I whew, young Jude Law man, very blonde, those cheekbones. It's a great look, it's beautiful. Just yes. a, a beautiful man. He's very beautiful. He looks great now. He looks great then. Every yeah. every shade in between. It's done some questionable things, but you know, oh well. (laughs) I don't know. Do do you have like casting thoughts? My problem is I am uh, not up on the youth actors. Like I don't know who, I don't know like young 20s. So my only, my only casting thought I have is for Alex. And this is a hill I am prepared to die on. Because I think Benjamin Wadsworth, who was most notably in um, Deadly Class, uh, the sci-fi show, okay. he is—he's great. He is half Mexican from Texas, twenty-one years old, very, very attractive, perfect. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. So everybody, please go look at Benjamin Wadsworth. Oh yeah, I see that now. Yeah, he's I a, think he's a perfect Alex. I think it's really important to make sure that if they cast this movie that the actor who plays Alex is Mexican American. I know mm-hmm. that uh one of the like fan artists that we really like, her name's Vanessa Kelly. You can find her stuff on Instagram. Maybe I'll share something of some of her red, white, and royal blue stuff this week. But I think people have commented on her art in particular and like how her depiction of Alex actually like looks Mexican American versus other like Latin American cultures. And I think that that will be really important. Uh because Alex talks a lot about how like he's his identity is already not compromised, but he already has an uphill battle because he's he can't pass for white. Like he's 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 brown. He can't. Uh, that's a one roadblock he already has, and now he's going to add yeah. this other layer on top of it. So I think that that's really important to show that representation, and it's really important in this book too, in terms of like there is some religious interplay and like the importance of Catholicism too. And his connection to his culture and his father is very important. Yeah. I think what we wanted to do now, we talked about this a little bit last week, is we wanted to end with some end of the year superlatives. This will be our last episode for the year. When we're done, we'll tell you what we're planning on doing next here in the new year. But we have some categories here in terms of our favorite books for the year, things that we've read. And we are and only counting new reads, not rereads. So Correct. this would be a very different list if we were counting rereads, but we're not. It so would. just books we read this year. Correct. Which for me, I don't, for me this year manifested itself in like, I couldn't watch a lot of TV most of the time. So I like read more for some reason that was like easier escapism for me. Everyone has handled this year differently. So I read 
so much this year. Like, I'm, <laughs> like embarrassed. And like in retrospect, it makes me a little sad because I know it's a, an, a lot of it was a response to anxiety and just like needing to escape. Yeah. But I read a lot of really fun things because of that. So this was kind of hard. So let me, I'll just, you know, pick some categories that are in here. We're going to have like favorite like categories of books. And then we're also going to have some silly ones because we're silly sometimes. <laughs> All right. What's your favorite romance novel of the year, Tasha? I don't know if this counts as like a strictly romance novel or if it's just like literary fiction, but I went with The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, mm, which I read much earlier this year. And it is so good. It is by Taylor Jenkins Reid. Mm-hmm. And it is kind of an old Hollywood story told about this almost Catherine Hepburn type of figure. Um, old Hollywood starlet and, you know, obviously her seven husbands, but really the romance at the root of this story is one she has with a fellow actress mm-hmm. who is a woman. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's, it's really good. It's a really good book. I like that one a lot. That's a good pick. Yeah. How about uh, you? I'm glad I didn't read it this year because you might have just thrown me into a tizzy. I think I read it last year <laughs> or the year before. <laughs> uh, I'm like splitting the baby here, which I'm going to do in many categories. Sorry. Not Sorry. So I my I think my favorite romance like love story book I read this year is Boyfriend Material by Alexis Hall for several reasons because it's really funny and has a lot of heart. It is about the son of uh, these 80s rock stars who's kind of like a D-list celebrity in the UK and after like a tabloid scandal is forced by his employer to bring a respectable date to their annual fundraiser and he starts fake dating this barrister who's very like uptight and very type A and they just have a really sweet romance and it's really really funny too that all the side characters and it's are. so funny the audiobook is is great i'm not a huge audiobook person as i've talked about before but this summer after i read this book i wanted to just keep reading it and you told me that the audiobook was really good so i downloaded it and would just like listen to it repeatedly as i would like go on walks outside and it's it's really good but it is frustratingly fade to black which if you're not familiar that means like in romance novels where they then cut out of the scene when it gets to the sexy times so for like romance novels like capital r romance novels that do have some good old-fashioned smut in it my choice is take a hint danny brown by talia hibbert i talked about talia hibbert's books last week on this pod they are steamy they are really well written (laughs) and fun um that was probably my favorite like cohesive like storyline plus smut romance novel of the book or of the year so yeah moving on to best fantasy hard yeah i i picked this is one i read very recently um the house in the cerulean sea by tj oh my god i don't don't have any author names klein or clune okay so yeah it's that one yeah it's just, I, I don't even want to try to describe the plot, but it is, it's such a, one of those warm hugs of a book. Yeah. It just, yeah. man, it, it makes you feel so good. It's so sweet. And it's it is so good. Yeah. I loved it. Yeah. I love that book too. It's one of those, it's like best you don't know anything about it before yeah. you read it. Cause it's really hard to describe. Um, my favorite fantasy of the year, I think adult fantasy, I'm going to go with the invisible life of Addie LaRue, which you talked about at the beginning. It's very light fantasy. I forget the term, you know, there's high fantasy where you're like a totally different fantasy world 
world and then there's like urban fantasy yeah so it's like it takes place within our world but then has like some magic interspersed and so it's kind of like a real more realistic sort fantasy. of like magical realism yes yeah so uh to the extent that that's fantasy i would say that's my favorite adult fantasy favorite young adult fantasy is hard because i've read a ton of young adult fantasy this year but i've had to pick just one book that really speaks to me it is a song of wraiths and ruins by roseanne brown which hopefully we'll be covering on the podcast we're planning to cover on the podcast next year because the second book in that planned duology is coming out soon um, or coming out like in, I think, June. Uh, but it, it's a really cool fantasy world. It's based on like African folklore. It's just really different than any other fantasy I read. It has really compelling uh, arcs between the two main characters. And I really liked it a lot. And I can't wait for the rest of the duology to come out. And I think I picked it too, just because like I said, it is so different than a lot of the other fantasy stuff I've read this year. And it's great to see that kind of that difference come out. Uh, we're a young adult podcast, despite what this episode was. <laughs> <laughs> so what's your favorite YA book of the year? It was a book we've covered already. It was Cemetery Boys by Aidan Thomas. Yeah. And we've we've already talked a lot about it. So I don't really need to get into yeah. it. But that one, that one was my pick. Yeah. I wanna shout out two other ones too, Felix Ever After by Casing Calendar, which is a great book also about uh, a trans main character and that one's a little bit more exploration of self-identity than uh cemetery boys is it's not magical it's set in new york city uh and it's way more ya in terms of a lot of like teenage angst and stuff going on there so i like that one a lot and then i also want to mention tweet cute by emma lord who is i think going to be a really an author to watch in the YA world, just very funny, sweet romances that she writes. Tweet Cute is kind of like You've Got Mail, but about two teenagers in in modern day New York who like enter like a Twitter war with each other and connect on an app and they don't know like who the other is. And I thought it was is really well done. Her second book comes out in January and she's just a good one to watch. Favorite series that you read this year? My favorite series this year was the Winter Night Trilogy by Catherine mm-hmm. Arden. Mm-hmm. It's good. It's it's really good. I, I do hope to cover it one day. I don't know if it's strictly YA, but it's it's really beautiful. It's so atmospheric. It's something great to read in wintertime. So if you're looking for something, I highly, highly recommend it. It's great. Awesome. Yeah, it was so good. I, so series are like my number one thing I read this year. I've read like... I tried to count it and I stopped. I've read like 15 series this year. It's a lot. <laughs> so this is really hard for me, but I think one of the first series I read this year is the one that's still most compelling to me. And that is the Folk of the Air series by Holly Black, which we talked about at the beginning. I read it way back in January for the first time. We did just get this card and short story book that we talked about at the top of the episode. I love the world. I love the two of them. Uh, it's It's just really well done. I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, that one would have been somewhere on my list, but I read it last year, the year before, or whenever. I think I read the, the I like almost like when they were coming out. Yeah. So. Yeah. I think the last one came out like about a year ago. Last year. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So nonfiction, best nonfiction. I read a lot of really good nonfiction this year, which is kind of different for me because I don't read a lot of nonfiction in general. But I went with, uh, it is basically a collection of uh, of essays by Shea Serrano. It is called, Why Do You Think We're Here? Or Where Do You Think We Are? We are. 
and it is about Scrubs, the TV show. Oh, fun. And it's just a collection of these really beautifully written, so smart, these just great essays about the show and what, what makes it so good. And uh, I highly recommend that one too. And it's illustrated. Nice. Uh, I think my favorite nonfiction of the year was at Wow No Thank You by Samantha Irby, uh, which is a collection of like humorous essays by her. It's a, a new release this year. She's got a couple of other essay books. She's just, she's really funny. I listen to the audiobooks of her because nonfiction is one that I always listen to audiobooks of because uh, they, it's always read by the author and they're really interesting to me. So that was probably my favorite nonfiction. And then I think the big, the big category of the year, favorite book of the year. Um, <laughs> this one, this one was so hard, but then I, I I realized that I, there was one book that I read this year and it's got to be The Starless Sea by Aaron Morgenstern. Oh, yeah. It's such a beautiful book and I it is such book. a love letter to story. And it's, I liked it even more than I liked The Night Circus, which I did like quite a bit. For sure, yeah. Uh, the Starless Sea is just, it's just beautiful. I don't know how else to describe yeah. it. There really is no way to describe it. It's one of those things you just have to read, but yeah. it's it's so worth it. It's, yeah, it's really incredible. It, I read it, it came out last November. So I read it uh, in 2019. Uh, and I agree though, it's like one of my top five books of, of all time now. I, it, I'm i obsessed with it. So it's a very good choice. I am um, picking two again here because I can't make choices. <laughs> uh, but it also because it felt unfair because one of my favorite books that I read this year is several years old. I feel like I'm one of the last people to have read it. But I also read this back in like January or February and obviously I'll stick with me for a really long time now and I keep thinking about it which is The Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller oh, God. God. there aren't words for that no. book no. if you I haven't mean, read it read it, read God, it. you have to it's, yeah. it's so beautiful it's devastating Yeah, I don't think anything has ever made me cry harder yeah, honestly, it's, it's so good. It's it's beautiful, uh, but because I was a backlist item, I also wanted to pick a favorite 2020 release. And my favorite 2020 release is The House in the Cerulean Sea by T.J. Klune, uh, which you talked about already. I just loved it. I cried a lot during it yeah. at the end. Oh my god! So that was a favorite book. It's one of those books where I can't think of a single reader who would not like that book. Like it is fantasy, and that there are some like potentially fantasy like magical creatures but it's also a very human story i think that yeah. even if you don't consider yourself a fantasy reader it's very very light magic and it's it's just really well, well done okay and then a, just a couple of fun categories here because we always like to add, end with uh, our fun relatives when we're talking about a book who's your favorite book boyfriend or girlfriend tasia Oh, you know, um, it is Morozko from uh, the Winter Night Trilogy. Yeah. He is essentially death. Mm -hmm. And he's, God, what a babe. Yeah, totally. He is a babe. <laughs> yeah, he has uh, one of my favorite lines I've ever read, like, as a ship in my life. I won't spoil it here, but it comes in the third book. And... As soon as I got to that moment when I read that book, I was like, whoo, this, <laughs> yeah. this that was a good line. Uh, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, I have two, and I have two for this because we read a lot of YA, you and I, and I feel like sometimes I can't say that someone is like my book boyfriend without feeling weird about it because these are like teenagers, but right. I can like 
objectively say like this would be a good boyfriend like if if i was a teenager or like for the characters in that in that story i feel that way kind of about like kaz we talked a lot kaz brecker being a book boyfriend i don't actually want to like date kaz like i just think like he's a good quote-unquote book boyfriend um so my choice in that regard is from the charlotte holmes series by Brittany. i think cavalero is how you say her last name it is a gender swapped a young adult Sherlock Holmes series. It's actually a world in which like Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson were real people. And it's about their descendants, Charlotte Holmes and Jamie Watson. And it's before book series and they're teenagers and they're like solving crimes. Jamie Watson is like top book boyfriend I've ever read. Those books are kind of aggressively just fine, but he is a standout great book boyfriend lots of great moments with him and then in terms of like who I want to be my book boyfriend like that I feel comfortable like I could like date them perhaps I would say uh, I feel like such a cliche because if you're like on book tiktok or bookstagram like these guys are everywhere but I can't really decide because they're very similar between Reese from the Court of Thrones and Roses series by Sarah J. Moss and Hawk Flynn from the From Blood and Ash series, which I talked about a couple weeks here. They're both just like very similar, like competent, badass, kind of gruff men who are just like really soft (laughs) for the main character. Those books are like heavy, heavy romance books. And there's just so many swoon worthy moments. And I, Listen, I save a lot of fan art about them. Both those series, particularly Akatar, have like a lot of problems. I like get it, but like the moments that are good, they're good. Reese is pretty hot. Reese is so hot. Reese is hot. Okay, I'm sorry. He is. (laughs) Like I get, I get the issues with those books, but he's he's a good boyfriend. Anyway, best steam in the book. Best romance steam. I think the. The best steam that I read this year was in um, Get a Life, Chloe Brown by Talia mm-hmm. Hibbert. Mm-hmm. That book is, uh, yeah, exactly. That, that scene, like where they're behind the statue. Yes, exactly. That's exactly <laughs> where my mind is right now. <laughs> it's so yeah. hot. Oh, my God. And like the dirty talk in that book is like. Yeah, and dirty dirty talk is, I mean, if some if something's got good good or good dirty talk, then I'm here for it. Yeah. And that one really does. Yeah, that was that was quite see me. I agree. Um, I think I mentioned this and this is kind of cheating because it doesn't come out till next year, but there's some similar moments in Act Your Age Eve Brown, which is coming out next year. That also made me like uh, <laughs> <laughs> I also I talked about the beginning of this episode that the roommate had some also very good moments in it and then this is hard because as i have said before i am the biggest shipper in the world i (laughs) love to ship nothing more to the point where i read so many of these series this year as i was saying at one point my friend and i had a conference call like one day we were it was not a conference call it's not like we scheduled this but we were on the phone (laughs) and we're like let's talk about all of our favorite ships from all these series we run and who's our favorite so who's your favorite ship that you've read this year it's I, I've got to go back again to the Winter Die trilogy and mm. go with Vasia and Morosco. They have yeah. just kind of we we've talked about it a lot, you and I, over text and stuff. Mm-hmm. That they, they have just kind of the the perfect balance of of personalities and of power, and yeah. they're just they're so good together and so good apart and they're, they're just such a good independent couple. And I, I love them both so much. And for books that are not 
steamy. The yeah. books are hot. Like it's it's weirdly hot. And mm-hmm. I'm just I'm very much here for it. I agree. But as that. we know, I am established as a big stan of gods yeah. of death and <laughs> shipping them with anybody I possibly can. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna go with again to return to the folk of the air series, Cardin and Jude are so good. Another example of a couple that is is just really well balanced. Yeah, it's very, it's, it's very well done. Cardin, you think hates Jude. He's like actually low key obsessed with her. He's so soft for her. One of the great things about that magic system in the world is that uh, Cardin is fae. He's fairy and they can't lie. And so the mental gymnastics he plays to like keep his, play his cards close to the chest and not reveal how he feels about Jude is is really well done. It's interesting though because Jude is a very frustrating part of that ship because she's just like oblivious. She's just like cannot accept that he actually does like her. He's very like she's very distrusting of him to the point where I never wanted to reach into a book and like shake character so much. Like yeah. Jude, he's into you. <laughs> like, <laughs> but I get it. Um, that frustration aside, I I really love seeing them together and then seeing in the uh, how the king of Elfham learned hate stories short story we just got there's some great like card and obsessed with jude moments they're just a really well balanced yeah he's jude's number pair. one stan oh my god he loves her so much in her ears because they're like normal ears it's, it's yeah. a lot of rumination <laughs> on her ears. it's weird it sounds weird but it's not um so that's my favorite <laughs> ship of the year i think about them a lot but we've talked a lot about great ships yeah and they're one of those ships that's like when people talk about enemies to lovers and what they really mean is this person like kind of didn't like the other person for five minutes and not they're in love no they, they hate each other hated each other just and they are like literally trying to kill each other half the time mm-hmm. just kicking the shit out of each other mm-hmm. just sabotaging mm-hmm. each other trying to destroy but it's it makes sense in the story the they have real reason really genuine yep. yep and when they do get together it doesn't feel like an erasure of all the bad shit they've done to each yeah. other but it just kind of recontextualizes a lot of it. So it's, it's kind of a, just a perfect textbook example of that enemies to lovers done just exactly right. And for YA books, they don't have like a ton of theme. Obviously it's nothing explicit, but the moments that they do have are really, really, really good moments. Yeah. Uh, So yeah, I like them. So that's it for 2020. We did it. Woo. Thank you so much for joining us this year, guys, as we kicked off this journey here. We've had a lot of fun. We want to take a brief moment here to give you guys, you know, a few weeks heads up about what we are doing next, which is kind of a big project uh, and was quite frankly the impetus for starting this podcast in the first place. Tasia, do the honors. Yeah. So the, as Corinne said, it was the impetus for starting this entire podcast was that we just wanted to talk about this one series. We wanted to talk about it so much that we wanted to break each book down by like five chapter segments and approach it that way. We're not going to do that because we have decided to expand and encompass a lot more YA books and cover a lot more of that. So what we're going to do, we're going to take a couple of weeks off for the holiday. And then in the new year, we're going to start covering The Raven Cycle by Maggie Stiefvater. We have so much to say about these books. It's going to be the Raven Cycle and also the continuing her her Ronin trilogy, the Dreamer trilogy. Yeah, and we're, so, we're gonna 
This is going to be a really big project. We're not going to do five chapter segments. What we're going to do is book one, we will cover in just one episode. Book two and three and four, we will be splitting in half. So two episodes per book. And then we're going to have another, like a bonus episode for the ancillary material, like the Opal short story. And then another episode for Call Down the Hawk, which is the first book in the Dreamer trilogy. Yeah. Yeah. So that's going to be the next couple months. Yeah. We're really excited about it. As Tisha said at the beginning of our year end superlatives here, if we could talk about like all time favorite things, we'd have different answers. We're Mm. real big fans of this series. I think both of our, if we had to pick our, our true OTP, it's from this series. It's the same one. We have the same one. So we're going to have no chill about it. It's fine. Yeah. Uh, And this is my favorite (laughs) series of all time. Yeah. Yeah, So that list would be very, very different. Yeah. And Corinne is somebody that I have found that really feels these books on the same level I do. So I'm just so excited to get into it. And, you know, there might be a role reversal of who is crying the most from now on. (laughs) Take that man. Take that crown for me, Tisa. I'm happy. I think I locked it together this week. So you did. That's pretty good of me. I'll just probably weep later because I'll keep thinking about Alex and Henry. It's fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. (laughs) Guys, I'm fine. So yeah, we're really excited to do that next year. And it won't end when we're done with that too, because the next book in the Dreamer trilogy about Ronan is coming out in May. So we'll come back and talk about that too, because there's some stuff happening in that trilogy. So but until then, friends, thank you again for joining us. Tisha, where can uh, people find you on the internet? The you can find weeks. me on Instagram and Twitter at Ragey Cakes. And I am on Instagram at Rin underscore reads. The podcast is on Twitter and Instagram at Actia Age. You can reach us via email at ActiaAgePod at gmail.com. And if you would not mind rating, reviewing us on iTunes and Apple Podcasts or wherever you podcast, that would be very helpful to us and we would appreciate it very much. Friends, happy holidays. Happy New Year. We'll see you in 2021, which sounds like a made-up year. It does not seem real. It actually happens, so we're not just Groundhog Day. Oh, my God. Good riddance to 2020. Well, this podcast has been one of the only good things that have come come out of this year. So (laughs) at least we have this. We'll always have Act Age. So anyway, bye, friends. Bye.